0: Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit. Preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. You're here in the Psalm book of the Bible. And with your fingers here in Psalm 44, I want you to take and turn over and put a ribbon in in Romans as well. And we'll spend some time, we'll actually finish up probably in Romans this morning. This is an interesting psalm by which we draw attention to the third or I guess, uh, third in line of this book two. And of course, your, your psalms are divided into five books. And book two starts in Psalm 42. And the opening of Psalm 42, you'll find a very similar inscription as you do in 44. Uh, you'll find out that it's to the chief musician, Masiel. And then he goes, for the sons of Korah. And that Masiel, that means instruction. And what he's doing is this psalm was given by the chief musicians to the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah, as it came, were descendants of Korah in the Old Testament, you'll remember. And their primary temple responsibility, among others, but their primary one was they were the singers. It's interesting. Think about this week. You know, we sometimes have the idea that there's really important ministries and there's less important ministries how there are some things that we feel are beneath us and some things we might feel are above us. And David and Moses before him, as they arranged the fitting of the tabernacle and later the temple, had to ascribe people to do certain tasks. And you had one group of priests and their exclusive responsibility was taking care of the temple so that it was prepared for the next day's ministry. And that was their vocational ministry as well. And there was only a small group of them that could be part of the high priestly order. And only certain of those would rise to the level of being the high priest that once every year and only one time got to go into the holiest of holies. I thank God that each of us, regardless if your ministry may be deemed in your eyes or others as being small or large, equally each of us has access by Jesus Christ into the very throne room of God. When it comes to Psalm 44, you see that Masiel, he's talking there about instruction. And these certainly are instructionary psalms. Psalm 44, little is known about the historical scenario that surrounds this psalm. In fact, some of them, they're indicated right in the text of Scripture. This one is one in which many times there seems not only to be much known that surrounds it, but there's even much less known as what the actual timeline is. There is a tradition among some Jews that portions, primarily verse 23 of this psalm, were used during the Maccabean Wars uh, that were fought uh, to gain some portion of uh, independence uh, in, uh, in, in the Holy Land after, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and before the time of Jesus Christ. The Maccabean Wars is what brought out uh, the the Roman providence of Judah and the Idumeans and Herod and Agrippa and all of those people. That all those positions of power came right out of the Maccabean Wars, uh, and they were started by a uh, a group of Jews that opposed the Seleucid dynasty's authority and their defilement of uh, the Second Temple. And so they started a war. It would last many years. Many people would die. And uh, as a result, they would gain a small foothold of independence and would expand that. But due to corruption, due to many other things, it would shrink up, really, and be divided asunder to where no Jew actually held any authority. And that's Herod Agrippa and later Pontius Pilate. Uh, but during that time frame, um, the... the uh, Tradition is that some of the Levites would rise up and they would cry out on the 23rd verse. Note the 23rd verse. Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us off not forever. It's interesting. Can you imagine to ask God why He's sleeping on you? When you go through the previous verses, particularly... Um, verse number 19, and, and we'll see in a moment, verses nineteen nine through about 14. There's all manner of difficulty that they're facing. And yet, there is a constant cry and adherence to faithfulness to God that brings no easement, no answer, no deliverance from these difficulties. And such was during that intertestamental time, the Maccabee Wars. Here you've got individuals, there's a remnant of righteous people. They want to do right. By the way, there's always been a remnant of righteous people. And by the way, they've always been in the remnant. And they're crying aloud to God, but nationally, the host of Israel has forsaken God. These remnant believers look and say, God established us by power. God did great works. We'll look at that in a moment. But now it seems there's nothing but godlessness around them. And because of that godlessness, God has now sent judgment. And because they, this remnant, were part of this ungodly nation, just like you and I, you're part of a nation. doesn't mean you agree with everything the nation does. But if God sends judgment on this country, because you are a child of God and you live in this country, what does that mean? It means you're going to go right through it. Much like Daniel of old we're talking about the Sunday school hour. He was there to follow Babylon. Wasn't his fault Babylon fell. Wasn't his fault Jerusalem fell. But he had to go through that difficulty all just the same. And it would seem as though God's great judgment's being poured out. They're mocked. They're scoffed in derision. Why isn't God answering my prayer? Kind of reminds you of Elijah of old a little bit. He said unto the Servants of the grove, servants of Baal. He must be asleep. Cry louder and rouse him from his sleep. And so the tradition has that these Levites would recite that 23rd verse. Awake, uh, why sleepest thou, O God? Cast us not all forever. Until eventually Jehochanad, the high priest, told him to stop. Rebuked him with the 121st Psalm, that Psalm of degree where the Scripture says of our Lord that He slumbers not, nor sleeps. But nonetheless, the psalmist here is saying, there seems to be an inaction on the part of God to deliver me from trouble. I don't know the timelines. What I do know is, in our life, as in the lives of David, there can sometimes be times in our lives where one wonders if God is aware of the circumstances through which we're going through. I think that true in times of natural, national rather, tragedy. As such is the case here in scriptures. As such is perhaps something that you and I collectively or independent have experienced in our country. And go down and uh, spend time, I think back, what was that, 20, 2008, 2007, Katrina, uh, down in New Orleans. Was that 2008. Go down and ask some of the saints what they did to deserve that flood. That's a national tragedy. And it can make you say, well, where's God's answer to prayer? Why am I going through this difficulty? Sometimes it's a case of personal torment. It might be a personal torment that's caused by a level of persecution. We were down at the Bible Museum Friday and, and I went through the second floor, and I must have missed it twice. Some of the men directed me to it. But they had a temporary exhibit there for one fellow by the name of Watchman Nee. Uh, Watchman Nee came to the United States one time. He was he's a China, Chinese. He was born again and preached for a number of years and wrote a number of books. Uh, many of them were edifying to many saints. And in 1952, during the... Uh, revolutionary, counter-revolutionary, I should say, front in China where they were a cultural revolution purging of all of the academics and all of the free thinkers and freedom-loving individuals that were left over from the uh, end of World War II and beyond. They arrested him. He waited in prison four years before he came to trial. At trial, he was sentenced 15 years hard labor. And often during those 15 years, they would ask him, Why don't you just recant your belief in God and go home? He finally died after 20 years of confinement, 72 years old of tuberculosis, by himself. You know, you look at something like that. Wouldn't you say that he'd have been right to adopt as his last verse, the 23rd verse of the 44th Psalm? Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord, what did I do? I was faithful to my wife, I was faithful to my children, I was faithful to my God, and I'm in prison. And I'm never getting out. I've got a number of books in my library of men who spent years in communistic prisons, beaten, tortured, ripped from their families. Think of the scriptures, think of Stephen. Blessed Stephen, the deacon there at the Jerusalem church, as he preaches that faithful, faith-filled message in the 6th, uh, 7th chapter of the book of Acts. And they gather together and they stone him for it. Wouldn't this be a apropos prayer request for him? Awake, oh God, stop this! Well, if I die for preaching the faith of the gospel, if I die for... The don't you know what that's going to mean? My children are going to be fatherless. My wife's going to be a widow. No doubt the church is going to be injured. He's a the church. He's, he, he is of great uh, value in the local assembly. Wouldn't that be his prayer? What happens when it seems that God doesn't deliver? I think of the three Hebrew children over in the plain of Dura. They're cast in and they tell Nebuchadnezzar, they say, listen, fella, you throw us in and our God will save us. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. They were prepared for the very fact that this might be their last speech. They knew not what God's will ultimately was going to be. What do you do when the difficulties of life go contrary to what you feel is just? And it very well may be. But about the number of times I, I think of dedicated Christians that have diseases that they have persevered with for years, elements of the flesh, and yet God has chosen not to heal them. You've got textual examples. Think of Paul. Lest I be lifted above measure, God sent a message of Satan to buffet me. Thrice I beg God, but my God said, My grace is sufficient for thee. It continues to buffet him. Later in his years of ministry, couldn't he cry out, Awake! Why sleepest thou? Does thou cast us off forever? Sometimes it's times of temporary tragedy. It's financial loss. Health, as I said before. Times that cause our heart, though sinful, to question God's sovereign plan when we regard future events. And a lot of times in difficulty of life, we we, maybe we won't voice it, but our heart says, why us? Someone else is more deserving of this calamity than I am. Lord, I've attempted to commune with you. Lord, I've given unto you. Lord, I've labored unto you. Lord, I've attempted to live a life before God that is well-pleasing to him. Why is it that I'm going through this, that, or the other? I think the cry in verse 23 sometimes comes deep in our heart. Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Yet really the theme, the overarching theme, could really be found in verse number 8. Where the psalmist cry aloud to the sons of Korah, In God we boast. It's no word for praise. I'm going to esteem God. Yea, even in a time in the darkest of dark, I'm going to boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. Selah, consider this. This theme of not having deliverance while maintaining a steadfast dedication to the things of God is really the theme of the 44th Psalm. Likely, this Psalm was written during either the time of the judges or of the early kings. And the reason for that is you look through some of the text in verse number 9, it seems that the Israelis here, there's an army or armies mentioned. So obviously it was not during the time of Moses' wandering, for there were no armies then in the context that you might consider. In verse number 10, there's a military defeat. The enemies, they spoil us, they turn us back. In verse number 11, the people are fleeing. In verse 11, it uses the word, it said they're scattered among the heathen. In verse 12, to one degree or another, they've been made slaves. You find that off the case in the time of the judges. Verse number 13, they're ridiculed by their neighboring countries. Made us as a reproach to our neighbors and scorn and derision to them that are round about us. You think during some of the times of the judges the nation of Israel came through Jordan and there at Jericho. And the battle, God delivered it into their hands. God drave out asunder some of the kings. God provided many and wonderful, powerful victories to them, not of their own hand. Their bow and sword had not won it. And they inherited this great land. And when subsequent generations come, particularly at the end of Joshua, Joshua prophesied of these things. He told them the grand importance of personal, individual choice. He said, choose you this day who you will serve. Be it that God's one of the southern flood, which your father served, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And he exhorted them to this. Just a few chapters later in Judges, there arose a generation which knew not God, and it kicks off a precipitous, consistent cycle of revival, of slavery, of sin, of slavery, that's the next order, and ultimate deliverance. And at times, all of the nations ungodly around them would snicker at their dismay. How can it be, they might say, that your God squashed Pharaoh? For we are not as people as great as Pharaoh, but you are our slaves." We know at Jericho, they waited all those years. The people of Jericho were in trembling, awaiting for the arrival of the nation of Israel to cross Jordan and take from thence. They trembled. And here all the world would have trembled at the sight of great Jerusalem, the gateway to the land of Canaan, collapsing. Only to watch the children of Israel go down the street to Ai and get torn asunder. All the countries you could hear... It. <laughs> What a joke. What derision? And on and on that seemingly would go. They're left in verse number 15, says, "My confusion is continually before me. That word confusion and has the idea it's my shame, my reproach, my embarrassment. It doesn't seem that this should be it. I have done, Lord, what I was to do. I have sought God early and often and humbly. And yet all around us, I seem defeated. And it is though deliverance will never come. Why? Why was it this way? Look here in a text this morning, and I, I want to do something a little bit different than we've done in the last couple of weeks. The last couple of weeks I've i on giving you really the interpretation and then making an application. This morning, I want to go through these some 28 verses, and I've got five points I want to give you to divide this. And then I want to make the application right out of that text, slightly different than what we've done before. Notice if you will, in the first three verses of this psalm, you have an unmatched conquest of the past. If you prefer victories, look at verse number 1 through 3. He says, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what works thou didst in their day and times of old. How thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hands and plantest them. How thou didst afflict the people and cast them out. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword. Neither did their own army save them, but thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou haddest a favor unto them. Look at these unmatched conquests. This nation surrounded by all these hostile and godless nations. Many of the Jews at this time, because of the difficulty, no doubt began to wonder about the, uh, the, the fact that they were even miraculously in existence. That they had been divinely preserved. Times in their minds had changed, and so God obviously did as well. Notice if we go in verse number 1. We have heard with our ears, O God, our what? Circle that in your Bibles. I know that Father's Day is, is it next week or the week after? I think it's the week after, 19th. I know it's two weeks away, so you can't talk about fathers. You've got to wait two weeks on that one but our fathers have told us. That is part of the responsibility of fatherhood. Conveying the truths, the identification, the principles, the preachship, the leadership of spiritual things in life. You know, I think of all the grand stories that a father could tell his children or that somebody could tell <laughs> Then there's those stories that a father doesn't want his children to know about himself, you know. Our fathers have told us. A lot of lessons to learn in life, but none greater than to learn about God. Our fathers told us. With all of our stories, make sure, fathers, we remember our God. To be open with Him. To be free. There's some things I might be embarrassed to talk about. There's some things, believe it or not, that I don't have the words to describe or don't have the capacity to understand. But my friend, when I get the opportunity, let me not be remiss in talking to my children and my children's children about the marvelous works that God has done. Don't be remiss in that. Our fathers told us. But notice the work. It was the work that thou, that is God, did. And I look at this phrase, in their day. That's a personal experience. Daddy sat down and told me about what you did when he was a little boy. That begs the question, Daddy, what has God done in your life? These times of old. He lists a couple of here. He said, you drove out the heathen. You planted Israel in the land, as it were. You have afflicted the people. You've cast them out. And then he continues in the following verses... After the affliction in that, he says in verse number 3, that all of this inheritance of the land was not won by their sword. It was not won by their own arm to save them. It wasn't by their strength. It rather was by divine favor. It was a battle that God fought. Remember the old spiritual? It was God that had fought the battle. It was God that had given the victory. And so though there's a nation surrounded about them that is ungodly, and though there's teeming host, a majority of Jews, that have long given up the idea that there was a divine uh, perseverance or preservation that would exist, that there's a lot of Jews that have said, I don't believe that we're anything special at all, that God has long cast us off. This remnant says, we know that this work was done by thy hand. Why? It was an unmatched conquest. There's nothing to be compared to it. But he moves to a transition in verse number 4. Thou art my king, O God. Command deliverance for Jacob. He's not singularly talking about the father, one of the fathers of Israel. By Jacob, that is the pre-conversion name of Israel. Jacob means deceiver, supplanter. But after he wrestled with God in the night, his name was changed to Prince with God, Israel. It's a marvelous thought here of this prayer. Thou art my King, Elohim, Sovereign God, the Sovereign God that has a definitive purpose and has unmatched power, command, deliverance for whom? The bunch of deceivers that have made up Jerusalem. He identifies them, Jacob does that very name with the worst of their characteristic traits. Command a deliverance. I would submit to you this transition, moving from the, uh, the wondrous conquest that exists, he's now going to talk about his unending confidence for the future. Bold language here is given of faith. Thou art my king. Command deliverance. In the following verses, he goes on in verse number 5, Through thee, we will push down our enemies. Well, that's a powerful one there. Because at this particular time, many of you are enslaved. You're defeated. He goes on in verse number 5, says, We'll tread them down. Tread uh, Tread them under that, rise up against us. A bold confidence for future events. Then he moves to a bold assurance in the following verse. For I will not trust in my bow, neither my sword to save me, but thou hast saved us from our enemies, and hast put them to shame that hated us. And then to bold praises in verse 8. In God we will boast all the day long. Praise thy name forever. I think of what Jeremiah wrote, the ninth chapter of Jeremiah. If any glory, let him glory in understanding that he knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in earth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 31, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11 specifically, he said, if any man glory, let him glory in the Lord. Not earthly wisdom, that's boldness. These four verses, verse 4 through 8, he speaks of the marvelous works. And you would think in contrast to that, whenever you've got marvelous works and you've seen that done, that that produces boldness in the lives of those that have heard it, in the lives of those who have witnessed it, and that's exactly what it's had. But note the beginning word of verse number 9. It is the most defeating word in all the English dictionary, but... See, you should talk about God delivering you. You know He delivered you yesterday. You know that He has kept you. You know that He has guarded and provided for you. But you finally come up against something that is greater than what has previously occurred. But thou hast cast us off and put us to shame and goest not forth With our armies. He's now moved from the confidence to the conflict. A methodical defeat in the current present, unabated conflict. The Israeli army here, God's not gone forth, they're defeated. You've made us to turn back from the enemy. They which hate us spoiled us for themselves. And verse number 11, thou hast given us like sheep appointed for meat. You know what that idea is? Back in Hebrew days, they would have, even if you consider for a moment, an overview of the temple uh, to the north part when you come in off the highlands, there would be the pool of Asadia. And it was basically a, uh, something of an aquifer fed, but it was really just a, a pool of water. And they would bring the sheep in and they would wash the sheep there and they would come in through the sheep gate to the north side of the temple and you know what they were coming for? To be slaughtered. And there had in those days to be an endless supply of sheep because there was an endless need to sacrifice them. And each little sheep, dip them in the water, put them in a stall. They're the next one up to be sacrificed on the altar. That idea of being, what's the scripture say there, like sheep appointed for meat. Now, I'm not a farm boy. But I think we're mature enough a group to understand where your dinner table comes from, the food on it. There's no remorse in the hand of the butcher. About twice a year, I'll go up to the butcher and get a little meat. They're past feeling about it. They don't feel bad for Bambi. It's hard reality. It doesn't disrupt their sleep at all. In fact, it's the joy of the song upon their lips. You listen to a hunter, and he talks about that big deer that he got. There's a glimmer in his eyes. And that deer was some other deer's baby. Now, I'm not trying to make you stop hunting. I'm trying to give you the idea because here's the thing. You think about how some of these good hunters here, you think about how callous you are about harvesting of deer. Look what happens here in the scriptures. Thou hast given us like sheep appointed for meat. Put that in the context of what he's saying. You're running the nation through the meat grinder. They're killing us with impunity. They're spoiling, ripping from us our heritage, ripping from us our wealth, ripping from us everything we can have. There's nothing we can do. It's like next one up, next number up. There's no conscience bothered towards them. They do it with impunity. Unabated conflict. Because of such, the people are fleeing. They're scattered abroad, the heathen. Notice verse 12. Seeing all this, he said, Thou sellest thy people for naught, and dost not increase thy wealth by their price. So pillaged, seemingly at this event, is the nation of Israel that all the nations around them are impressing them in bondage. Keep in mind what I have told you in weeks before. Psalms is a prophetical book. It is an Old Testament book. There's no knowledge of the New Testament saint. There's no knowledge of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. There's no knowledge of the rapture. There's no knowledge of the church. One day Israel will sing these words again. It will be redeemed Israel that the book of Revelation speaks of. When that son of perdition, the Antichrist, these words will be filled in a whole other sense at that time. That's why in the Olivet Discourse the Lord tells them, if your flight, pray that it not be in winter. Pray that it not be to those that give suckling to a little child. Why? Because you're going to be prepared as sheep for the slaughter meat. One day they'll sing this. And the nation of Israel's is whole in that time will cry out, Awake, thou that sleepest, O Lord. What a horrible picture here that is placed. Thou makest us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us. Thou makest us a byword among the heathen. You know what a byword is? I forgot. That's the idea. Something that used to be that is now forgotten. Like I could speak this morning of the Kingdom of Mercia. How many are familiar with that, you know? Kingdom of Mercia was the kingdom that existed before the Kingdom of England existed. It's a byword. It's not even studied in general history today. You might think of the nation area called Indochina. It existed in the 1950s. Now it's the nation of Vietnam. Byword, something that formerly existed. Siam, what is that, Myanmar now I think it is? Or is that Burma? I can't keep it all straight. Read this week that one of the power block countries of the UN sent a letter out to all the Western world, petitioning the UN actually is what they did, to change the pronunciation of their name. You know it as Turkey. Turkey. They now, and I don't, can't even do it. service, they want to be known as Turye. Turkey, they say, is a fowl, a dumb fowl. That's what they called it. We didn't want to be known in the Western world as a dumb fowl. By words. By words. I'm old news. Here the nation of Israel is going through a great difficulty Those around them, just a byword among the heathen. A shaking of the head among the people. (laughs) Can't believe that. Can't believe it. Unabated conflict. Notice number four here in verses 15. My confusion is continuing before me. Shame my face hath covered me. Here we're going to move to an uncommon commitment. So so you started by the great works of power. Now there's a series of boldness. Now you've got unabated conflict. And now the psalmist is coming full circle. Well, listen, I'm going to be committed. Regardless of what has happened, I believe what God said of His pious works. I remember the deeds that He's done. And that, because of who He is, what He's done, His ability, His characteristics, His attribute, it is going to produce in me a steadfast hope that God can deliver me. But now there's the outpouring of all of this conflict and the soul of the psalmist comes full circle in this fourth stanza and says, I'm going to have a commitment. I'm tongue lashed." he goes on to speak up. The voice of him that reproacheth me, blasphemeth by reason of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us. Note this phrase, you can underline it. Yet have we not... what? I've not forgotten thee. Neither have I dealt falsely with thy covenant. I'm committed. I've not been untrue. In the next verse he says, My heart is not turned back. Israel had a great problem with that. My heart's not turned back. Neither have our steps declined from thy way. I've not walked away. Though thou hast sore broken us in the place of dragons, that's the idea of monsters. It could be... Uh, monsters of, uh, uh, of, uh, of marine or of land. It could be a great shark in one sense, the, uh, a jackal of a land animal, whatever it is. That's the idea of these dragons. You've covered us with shadows of death. Verse 20, If we had forgotten thy name, the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of his heart. Lord... You know what I'm saying to be true. I am committed. You know this is true because if I had turned away from God, if I had bowed before pagan images, won't God find out? Yes. And the 139th Psalm, it ends with that Search me, O God. It's a scary thing for a Christian to say, Search me, O God, because the God that you're imploring to search your heart is the God that knows your thoughts and the intents of your thoughts always away, who is ever present. The night and day is the same unto Him. He knows your frame that is but dust. He knows all about you, inwardly and outwardly, and He's saying, you know the genuine commitment that I have had to you, Lord. I have not strayed, despite all of the conflict. He moves on in these verses with an unrelenting cry. Yea, Verse 22, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. Here's a second time he's mentioned this. We are counted as sheep for slaughter. New Testament word is reckoned. Just tallied up. There's no taking of names. They have marched us in line and harvest us like their Trying to feed Americans on a Fourth of July barbecue. Nothing to it. It's unrelenting. A merciless persecution. No value, seemingly, in our life. You know, this, you, sometimes we read the Psalms individually, and we make the application, and we miss the intent of the Psalm. We look at this and we think of our life, and I'll tell you what, I've never been in this situation in my life to say that I was counted as but sheep for a slaughter. To say, as he did in verse number 11, that I was sheep appointed for meat. Even in the darkest of nights, I can't say that to be the case. It goes on in verse 24, Wherefore hidest thou thy face? forget us our affliction and oppression. But here's a marvelous petition. It's unrelenting cry, if you will. The following verse, and the last verse, really, verse 26. Arise for our help. Redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Cast us not off forever. Don't forget us. Arise and help us. Redeem us for your characteristic is merciful. That's a whole picture that goes together. It started what they were instructed as children and what they knew to be true and what they believed to the bold faith that it produces. But then the conflict of life arose and that conflict that arose produced in them a commitment to keep true to Christ, if you will, and brings into full view a constant cry looking for God's deliverance. You almost feel like there ought to be a 27th verse. And He arose and delivered them. But it's not there. Does that mean then God has made no provision? I told you at the onset that we'd finish in the book of Romans. So I want you to turn to Romans, if you will. As one comes to the last portion of the 44th Psalm, one can't help to think about the coming trouble for Jacob. That Antichrist come and Daniel talks about wearing out the saints of the Most High God. The Jewish remnant. He, the Antichrist, will have made war against those and those that have stood against him in large number. It's a phrase that is used throughout Old Testament, New Testament, and this is the phrase. And it's in keeping with that 23rd verse I gave you earlier. What did it say? Awake, why sleepest thou? This psalm is not the first time where that has been a question stated to God. David in the 13th psalm said, in verse number 1 says, How long wilt thou forget me and hide thy face from me? Habakkuk, the exilic prophet, chapter 1 and verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? The Revelation saints in the 6th chapter of Revelation, the souls under the altar that were slain for the word of God, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood? The saint of God ends in the 44th Psalm. When's victory going to occur? When shall his loving kindness be manifested in our life? Keep in mind that the cry is coming for individuals that had not forsaken God. They had not walked away from God, but trouble still exists. What are they supposed to do? What are you and I supposed to do? You're in Romans chapter 8, this is where I want you to go. I want to go back to chapter 1 and give you a brief survey, but I want you to read verse 36. You remember, I told you it's almost like. Psalm 44 needs one more verse. Just one. And he delivered them. But it's not there. It's not there because it was forgotten to be. That's not why it's not there. It's not there because God didn't want it to be there. But look in verse 36 of Romans chapter 8. As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are as counted as sheep for the... Does that sound familiar to your ears? Where'd that come from? The 44th Psalm. Notice, if you will, pull your eyes up to the previous verse. Paul put the last, through inspiration, Paul put the last verse in it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... Shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, and sword, as it is written. You guys remember the 44th Psalm count as sheep for the slaughter. Notice verse 37. Nay, and all of those things, we are more than what? Conquerors. There's your last verse. What am I to do, Paul? What am I to do if I'm under conflict that does not seem to be resolved? If I'm under difficulty, if I'm under persecution, if I'm under famine, if I'm under sword, what is it I'm supposed to do? I'm walking with God. I'm attempting to do right. I'm loving Him as much as within me with my heart and my soul and my might. And I cry unto Him and there's no deliverance. What is the answer, Paul? Two words. Press on. In Romans chapter 8, there are at least nine reasons why the child of God can press on for Jesus Christ in the most dire of difficulties. Let me highlight these for you quickly. Look at verse number 1, Romans chapter 8. Verse number 1, There is therefore now what? No condemnation to them which are, after, after, uh, that, uh, which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but the Spirit. You know why I can press on despite difficulty? I can press on in my commitment and my faith to Jesus Christ. I can be steadfast and unmovable. Because of this, because of my secured future. No condemnation. There's not a chance an iota of a child of God entering into the demonic gates of hell. It's not going to happen. You're secured in Jesus Christ. Number two, because I have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And I won't read all these verses, but from verse number two, really even in the end of verse number one, all the way down through verse number 13, about a dozen times he mentions the cap- this word, capital S-P-I-R-I-T. You're the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Remember those saints in the 44th Psalm? They had no clue what the indwelling of the Spirit of God was. The Spirit of God worked in the similar way. He would come upon men and He would leave. My friend in the darkest of your hour, you have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. He said, I will not leave them comfortless, but I will send my Spirit to them. You have it. That's how you're able to have peace in tribulation. That's how you're able to have comfort in a time of great discomfort. That's how you're able to have hope in a hopeless situation. That's how you're able to have light and truth in the most diabolically deceitful times that we live. You have the Spirit of God in you. Look at verse 14 through 15. I'll try not to get distracted here. You want a third reason you can press on in times where it's difficult and it seems that there's no deliverance? You can because of the security found in Him. Note verse 14 and 15. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God... They are the sons of God, for they have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, dear Father. I have security found in him. I'm a son of God. I'm adopted. That is a legal decree of parentage possessive. He is mine and I am his, and there's no putting that away. It's eternal. I like that word adoption. It's especially true for the Gentile. I'm not a son of Abraham. God never made an eternal covenant with my daddy, nor my father before him, or my father before him. I'm an alien to the household of Israel. But thank God, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm brought nigh unto Him. And by adoption, I am His. And I can cry glorious and jubilantly in the darkest of hours. He is mine. I have security to be found in Him. Note verse 16, or really, verse 17 and 18. If children, if you're adopted, if you're born of Him, note this, if children, then you're what? What's the word? What's that mean? He has something that is yours. will be yours one day. Like well, A prince and a pauper thing, man. He's taken all the ashes and given me beauty for it. I can press on because of a sure reckoning. Note verse 18. Remember what I told you What word reckoning means? It's an accounting term. It means to take inventory. To count it. Paul says personally, for I reckon the sufferings of this present time. What sufferings, Paul? What well, could be tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, hunger, being abased, the cares of life, the treachery of so called friends, the loneliness, the difficulty? Paul said, I reckon. I count them all up. All of them. And all of the sufferings of this present time, yes, I've cried aloud, God, relieve me of this burden. Relieve me of this. I've committed myself fully to Him. I've cried unto Him. I've begged Him. But He hasn't delivered yet. He said, Paul said, I count all of that up. It's not worthy to be compared to glory. It shall be revealed in us. One day there's going to be a sure reckoning. Until then, keep pressing on. Notice, if you will, in verses 26 and following. I can press on because of the sustaining power of God. The Spirit also, what does it do? Helpeth my infirmities. I think about the parable of the Samaritan. That old fellow went among the thieves, remember? What did they do? They beat him. They robbed him. Now you have a Levite and a priest that pass on the other side, but at thence comes the Samaritan. And you know what the Samaritan did? He helpeth all his infirmities. He pulled him out of a place of danger. He mollified his injuries by pouring in oil. He wrapped him, he promoted him, placed him upon that beast of burden carried it into the end, paid for his bill, and he said, and when I come, I'll fulfill all the rest that he owes to you. I want to ask you a question. What that poor old injured fella have to do to receive all of that? Was there a reckoning to see if he was worthy of it? Why can you press on? You can press on because of the sustaining power of God with all of our infirmities. If you need more on that, look in verse 27. Uh, no, I'm sorry, verse number 26. But the Spirit itself maketh what? He's praying for me. When I've run out of words to pray, a prayer of thanks is always readily available because the Spirit of God is pleading for me. Oh, children of the 44th Psalm, I knew nothing about that. Sustaining power. Verses 31 through 33, I can press on. Oh, I missed this one. 28 through 30, I can press on because of the sovereign plan of God. And we know that all things work together. You know, a lot of times, we, I think that's one of the most taken out of context verses. We look at that so haphazard. But he's talking about a sovereign God and his care for you. He's talking the context of Romans 8.28 isn't whether or not you get a job. The context of Romans 8.28 is suffering. I just showed you all that. He's talking about the fact because you don't have condemnation and because you've got sustaining and because of this, all of the infirmities of life, all of the sufferings of life, all that is difficulty because you named the name of Christ, there's a supreme plan. That's what he's referencing. That's why he moves right into a sotological type of emphasis. That he knew you before the foundations of the world. The sovereign plan of God. God knows should be enough to keep me in service and obedience and submission to him. Verses 31 through 33, because of a supreme ability of God. What can we say to these things? Verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? The Moabites? That's a bygone nation. There's no Moabites Independence Day. Amnon? Maybe it's the Amalekites. Haman? That's a bygone word. Medo? Babylonian? They're bygones. Rome? bygone Isn't it interesting? There's still a state of Israel. What shall we say? If God be before us, who can be against us? Supreme ability of our God. Notice verse 32. Another reason you can press on your Savior's example. Look at verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him give us freely? Uh, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Look what he did with his Savior. His Son died on an old rugged cross. I think about what the Psalmist penned prophetically in Psalms. He has said, "The Lord said unto my, my Lord, Sit thee at my right hand." That's why Paul said, looking at the example of my Savior, I, can, I can't reckon all of this present suffering to be anywhere near equal with that glory that will one day be revealed in us. Finally, in verse 34 and following, I can press on because of a, I'm pinning a word here, Separate, separated less presence. What shall separate me from the love of Christ? What's your trouble this morning? You can press on in holy confidence. What's your pain this morning? You can press on in holy confidence. What is your fear, your need, your grief, your prayer, your longing, your suffering? There are nine reasons you can press on. Committed to the cause of Christ. Dedicated to Him. Though all difficulty abounds within, as a child of God, I can say, if God be for me, who can be against me? And I can boast all the day long in the God of my salvation. It's amazing that that was penned in the 44th Psalm. Only the child of God has the ability to boast in God when all the world is godless. For you and I that sit here this morning to have the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Oh, how great our thankfulness and joy should be. The one sustaining truth that must be held to in times of great suffering is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He will arise and He will help and He will redeem for His mercy's sake. He will. Therefore, in God we boast all the day. Let's stand. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. 17112. And visit our website at org. Until next time.